Well, you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 5. Last week we joined uh, Paul in chapter 5 uh, <clears throat> in this letter to the Corinthians. If you were part of that study uh, here in person or if you were watching from, uh, from home, then you will remember that Paul has, uh, he has moved on really to, uh, to address another major problem that was taking place in the church. They, uh, let me just scoot back a little bit here. There we go. Uh, they were dealing with division in the church. If you remember, they had created factions in the church. They were divided over who followed who. Uh, we even find out later they were divided over who had what spiritual gift. And so there were all kinds of divisions taking place. And so uh, Paul had uh, really taken the first four chapters to deal with that. But beginning here in chapter 5 and going right through chapter 6, Paul is going to address some other major problems in the church, which I've just called disorder in the church or disorders in the church. Uh, there were several things that were out of order in Corinth, but uh, the first thing that he chose to address was their lack of church discipline. That's what we began with last week. There were reports of uh, sexual immorality taking place in the church, and this particular incident was an incestuous relationship. Paul says a man has his father's wife, um, and that was going on in the church, and everyone knew about it, and, but, but nobody was doing anything about it. And really today, uh, the church at large, just in terms of the global church, if I could say it that way, is just as, as guilty of allowing sexual immorality into the church. Um, it's not only acceptable uh, today, but it is oftentimes modeled in the church uh, and from the top down. But Paul here makes it abundantly clear that sexual sin is not to be tolerated in the church. Uh, in fact, it's been mandated to the church to deal with all sin in the church. And so last week, we looked at three things um, uh, that I want to just re recap today here. We looked at the need for discipline, the model for discipline, and the reason for discipline. The need was clear. There was uh, open sexual sin taking place. Uh, they were too proud. They were boasting about everything else, all the while ignoring the sin and not dealing with it. Uh, the model then was given to us. Paul specifically said in verses 3 to 5, that they need to gather together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember he said that? And in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you are to take that person, and he says, deliver such a one to Satan. Harsh words there. But if you remember, we looked back at Matthew chapter 18, and we looked at uh, Jesus' own outline of church discipline and how that is to, to work. And when a church is acting in accordance with, with God's word, um, and they come to the determination that that unrepentant person is bound up in sin, then heaven agrees with that, um, that, that judgment. If that, if that group decides that person is loosed from sin, heaven agrees with that judgment. The whole point of that Matthew 18 section there, and he culminates by saying, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them, is to say, Jesus is with you in making that decision, because that is not an easy thing to make. No one wants to rush together to kick people out of the church. And so it takes a little bit of courage. It takes a little bit of, you know, um, bravery in terms of that, but also a great deal of humility coming uh, together, seeking the Lord's counsel and making sure that they are making that decision um, based off of truth and off of facts and that if that is determined that the person has sinned, that they need to carry out the discipline. And the discipline that is required there when they say deliver such a one to satan was simply to dismiss them from the fellowship of the church and so we ended last week with looking at the reason 
for church discipline. And there are really two reasons for church discipline. And we just looked at one last week. He says, the destruction of the flesh. And I did mention that that could mean that that person is meant to die. That sounds pretty hard. But that happened to Ananias and Sapphira. When they lied to the Holy Spirit, they died. Um, it could mean that, that is, God is going to take that person from the earth. It could mean that he's just going to receive a lot of affliction and pain, tribulations, difficulties, whatever. I think it probably more relates to those kinds of things that will um, help aid in the destruction of the lusts of the flesh because those are the things that are carrying them away. Um, and you, you're, the hope is that they will, they will uh, repent and that they will return. And so ultimately... The purpose, Paul says, is that a spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So if that person is truly a believer, his flesh may be destroyed. But that would be the consequence of his sin. But his soul would be saved. What's more valuable, your flesh or your soul? Well, certainly the soul. And so ultimately, it's for the purpose of the, the life of that individual dealing with the sin there. They may need further chastisement to bring about repentance. But there is another equally important reason to carry out church discipline in the church, and Paul covers it today, and that's what we're going to look at, and that is this, the protection of the church. It is to protect the church. And as I mentioned last week, the sin of sexual immorality had infiltrated the ranks of the, the church there in Corinth, and it has done so today to the degree that now uh, churches openly welcome and condone and even celebrate sexual immorality. And I just want to start by asking this question, why is that? Why has it, it, the church today largely failed to root out those kinds of things, failed to root out and deal with sexual immorality? I think one of the reasons, because, well, I heard one UK pastor recently say this, the church has evolved, right? Have you heard those kind of things? We've evolved, uh, we've, we've grown wiser, um, we've come to understand that God is love and that he wants us to be loving and accepting of everyone. And it's not for us to judge someone else's sin. Have you heard similar things like that? Well, Paul is going to deal with every one of those things here today. It is for us to deal with when it's in the church. And so I just want to begin by giving you an idea today of how God sees the church. Because I think people that make those statements are looking at the church from world's perspective, man's perspective. I want you to see what God sees when he looks at the church. And I don't mean the building. I mean the people, his church. And I'll take you to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And so Peter's writing to uh, believers and he's encouraging them to, to get rid of their former lives, their former lusts. And he says, be holy for I am holy. And he is quoting Old Testament scripture there. He's quoting from Levitic, Leviticus 19.2 to be specific. But if you go back into Leviticus and you begin to read, you'll see how often that phrase or a similar phrase is used. Be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In fact, in chapter 20, um, that phrase is repeated, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And as you read through tw chapter 20, and you begin reading through, there's a bunch of laws there. It's just law after law after law. And the laws there are meant to keep his people holy. 
That's what those laws are for. And as you read through them, that we find that human sexual relationships are covered in detail, quite, quite a lot. And every forbidden form of sexual activity is mentioned and included in chapter 20. Adultery, uh, incest, like we're dealing with here in Corinth, homosexuality, and on and on. And after all of that has been described, the reason for that mandate is given. And I'll show it to you. It's Leviticus 20, 26. And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Do you see it there? The Israelites were to be a what people? Separate people. I've separated you. Separated from the world. Their separateness was meant to show that they were indeed his. That's how they was, he was to determine that. You are separate. You're not of the world. And the church is to be the same. We belong to Christ. We don't belong to the world. He is the head. He purchased us. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, Paul says this to a bunch of pastors as they're pastoring the churches there. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church of Wales did not purchase you with their own blood. The Pope did not purchase you with his own blood. Jesus Christ purchased you with his own blood and you belong to him. And so he gets to make the call, amen? So what do we do, okay? People say, what do we do? He purchased us, that's fine, we're his, but why can't we do what we want to do? Why don't, why can't, I was asked that once, we did a sexual purity seminar one time and there were unbelievers there and they had good questions. Well, why can't I just do what I want to do? It's my body, why can't I do that? So, well, you were purchased. You, you, you've been purchased, someone bought you. And in Colossians chapter one, this is a very important verse. In verse 21, it says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he's reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. It's not just that he purchased us and that we belong to him, but he also reconciled us to God. Do you see that there? Meaning we were God's enemies. And why were we his enemies according to this passage? Because of your what? Wicked works. Do you see it there? Because of our wicked works. So yes, God is love, but he does not love our wicked works. Those things make us his enemies. So the question is then, well, how is he love? How was his love shown in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you? That's how he loves you. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's speaking to husbands, and he's telling them how they ought to love their wives. And he says this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ wants a spotless, pure bride. That's what he wants. And so to the Corinthians here, Paul is saying, listen, live as you are called. Holy. Remember saints, holy ones? You're holy. He sees you as such. God is love. But his love was demonstrated when he sent his son to die for us that he might purchase or redeem us for himself. 
that we would be a special people who've been presented to him as holy and as perfect. Not because we are, but because he is. His perfect, spotless blood that purchased us. And so as a holy people, we then are reunited into the fellowship with the God who is love. Do you see how that happens? But it only comes through his blood. Now that's how God sees the church. And I wanted to make sure we all understood that as we go into this, because this is, these are difficult things we're talking about. So with that in mind, I want to read the passage. We're looking at verses 6 through 13. So we'll read the rest of chapter 5 today, beginning of verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Let's pray. God, we do come before you today. Lord, grateful that we could open up your word and hear from the divine today. We understand that these are your words today, and Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand and see these truths. Your word is truth. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit guide us into truth today. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's dive into this bit here. So we're looking at the protection of uh, the, the church here, the protection of the church. And I'll read verses 6 and 7 again. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So Paul comes back to the fact that they've been glorying. They've been boasting about a whole lot of things to the point where they've been divided, yet all the while ignoring this gross sin that's been in the middle of their fellowship. And so Paul begins with that, and then he uses this strange word. It almost seems like he changes the subject. He talks about leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What is he talking about? Well, when you read Paul and his illustrations, when he refers to leaven, it refers to evil influence. In fact, he was writing to the Galatians, the church of Galatia as well. And they were really doing good. They were running well, he says, but then someone infiltrated their ranks the Judaizers did. They tried to subordinate them to the law again. And so he writes to them in Galatians chapter 5, and he uses a very, well, same phrase. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lot. There's the same phrase. Exact same phrase. A little leaven is obviously in reference to the, the persuasion of the one who hindered them. They were running well. Someone came in and their influence caused them to stumble. The influence of that particular person. And that's exactly how Jesus uses it in the New Testament as well. When you read Jesus, he talks about leaven. 
There are two exceptions, and I'll just say them really uh, quickly. In Matthew 13 and Luke 13, uh, Jesus uses leaven with the kingdom of God, meaning the good influence that leaven can have in that illustration. But all the other examples that we have, leaven represents the evil influence. And here's a great example. It's in Matthew 16, 6. Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says this to his disciples. And if you remember, they're really confused about what Jesus means. Uh, They start questioning whether he's talking about bread, which I would probably do the same. Why is Jesus concerned about bread? What do we do? We forgot the bread. And so Jesus, he's aware of their uh, confusion and he corrects them. And this is what he says. How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not uh, tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus was warning his disciples against the false teaching and the influence, the evil influence that would have on them. And Paul is speaking about the same uh, thing here in Corinthians concerning this sinning individual. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But I think there's even more here, and I think we need to go even deeper. Maybe you you don't understand leaven and what they're talking about, but in in sort of the Old Testament days, and probably there even in the New, a woman would go to kind of bake the bread, and she would knead all this dough together, and then she would put it in whatever container she was going to bake it in. But right before she did, she would take off a a little lump of that, and she would put it into water, and it would sit there and would ferment and sour for a week. And so that the next time she went back to make bread and make dough... She would knead it all together, and she would take that little bit it had fermented and put it in there and knead it in there so that it would permeate through the entire batch of dough. It would spread through all of it. It would cause it to rise, wouldn't it? So that's sort of the yeast. So the lump that Paul is referring to here is seen as the church. (laughs) He sees you as a lump, people. I don't know how you take that. So the leaven, then, is the evil influence of a sinning individual in the lump, in the church. And if given the opportunity to remain and continue unchecked, it could spread through the whole church. It would permeate the church, just like the leaven does the dough. And that is the nature of sin. That's the nature of sin. It's corrosive. It can spread and it can corrupt the whole body if it's allowed to stay. And so sin has to be dealt with. And that's why Paul says, purge out the old leaven. And what's he say then? That you may be a new lump. That's very interesting, isn't it? Purge out the old, that you may be new. Well, I think to understand this more completely, we have to go back to the Old Testament because there's something even more significant here, something even more applicable. And we've got to go back to Exodus chapter 12. So turn with me there. It's a big left-hand turn to Exodus 12. And this has taken us to the account of the Israelites as God was preparing to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. Uh, This is the 10th and final plague upon Egypt. It's the death of the firstborn. And protection from the destroyer is offered to the Israelites. But only, only if they follow these specific instructions. And here's here's where they are. First, they're supposed to select a lamb. And that's in verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So a selection of a lamb. Step two was to sacrifice that lamb. In verse six, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So the selection of the lamb, the sacrifice of the lamb, and then the sign 
of the lamb. And that's in verse 7. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And then they have a meal. And they're supposed to eat the lamb. And in verse 8, we're, we're given the meal. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Now, there's, there's all the stuff that they had to do. Now, when all that takes place, the angel of death, the destroyer, as he's mentioned in verse 23, comes. Now, what is the angel of death looking for? Look at verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign. Ah, there's the sign. This blood shall be the sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the angel of death is looking for the sign. The sign is the blood. Hopefully hopefully you're tracking here. So the children of Egypt are saved from judgment by the blood of the lamb. We sing songs about being saved by the blood of the lamb. This all makes sense to us, doesn't it? But there's something even deeper because it goes right on after this to talk about a memorial feast that needs to be established to remember this occasion. And it's in verse 14. Look what it says. This day shall be to you a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. This is crazy. They're just saved from God's judgment, saved from the death by the blood of the lamb. But if they have leaven during that festival, they're cut off from what? Fellowship. They're saved by the blood. But they don't get to enjoy the fellowship. Why? Because of the leaven. There's something very significant taking place here. In fact, it goes on to describe how important it is to get rid of this this leaven. Look at verse 19. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. In chapter 13, after the exodus, after they get out of uh, slavery and they're, they're leaving, in verse 3, it comes up again. And Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Doesn't that just seem out of context? The Lord just saved you. We're no longer in Egypt. Don't eat the leaven. <laughs> wow. What's going on here? What does this represent? Well, there's two things. First of all, the reason that God didn't want them to put leaven and make the, that took too much time. Remember, they to eat that meal in haste, right? Dressed and ready to go. So you could, didn't have time for the leaven to go into the bread and wait for it to rise. Certainly. And I've heard sermons say, oh, that's the purpose. Yeah, that's one of the purposes. But there's a deeper purpose. Because what does the leaven represent? The leaven, leaven represents their old life under bondage to Pharaoh. But now they're leaving and they're going to be part of a new life under God. 
The old leaven is the old life. They are to take nothing from the old life into the new. And that's why during that preparation for their departure and at every celebration of the Passover since, leaven was not to be found among them. They have a new life. And Paul calls the church a new lump. We have all been saved from the judgment by the blood of the Lamb. We've all been given a new uh, life, but don't we often sometimes, we take, we take some of the old life into the new. We take the old into the new. That's what happened to the church in Corinth. They had, many of these people had to come out of a, a, a wicked, pagan, immoral society, but they brought some of that old into the new. And so there's a leaven in the church. There's leaven in the churches today. And it happens because we just, we just don't understand how important it is to let go of that old life, that you really do have a whole new life. I think a lot of times we go, I like the new life, but I want some of this old too. I like the old and the new. I want, I want both. They couldn't have both there. You couldn't have some of those people like, well, I kind of want Pharaoh and his bondage. But I kind of like the idea of this promised land too. Maybe there's a way I can make both. Don't we do that in the church? Listen, there was no way to do both. Get rid of the leaven. You have a new life. Come with me. We're going to the promised land. That is what is happening here. Purge out, he says, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. What's he say? Since you are truly unleavened. You guys, we are truly unleavened. He's talking to saints. He's talking to holy ones. He sees you as holy, perfect, unleavened. We're sinless. We've been cleansed. Why? Because Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. That's what he says in verse 7. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So you have been separated from your old life of bondage to, to sin. You're no longer under the penalty of judgment. His blood covers you, and God has passed you over you with his judgment. That's the Passover. And if all that is true, then we should just eliminate every evil, evil influence from our old lives. That means the sinful habits as well as the sinful attitudes, the sinful standards of, that we were used to holding. Romans, Paul writes in Romans, he gives us a good example of this. In Romans chapter 6, verse 18, he says, And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. It's true, we're no longer slaves of sin, but you still are a slave in a sense. You should be at least treating yourself as a slave, but to righteousness. And he gives us a good example as, as to why that should be. In verse 19, the next verse, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. I mean, we happily present our members for wicked things. We, we do that with, with everything we got. He says, so, so now that you've been free from that, why don't you keep the same mentality, but give, your, give yourself over to pursuing things that are going to give you holiness, righteousness. Give your members over to him. Be a slave of righteousness. Why? You have a new master. He's not Pharaoh. Jesus died to separate us from our old ways. Why would we want to bring something from our old self and mix it up with the new? He says you need to purge out the old lump. Look at verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
Keep the feast, he says. What feast are we to keep? Hopefully you guys have been keeping a feast. People are now worried. Oh no, I missed it. To keep the feast here is not the Lord's Supper. Um, it's not a Passover. That's not the idea here. But it has reference to the continuous life of the believer as a festival or a feast or a holy day in freedom. Freedom from the leaven of malice and wickedness. Freedom from those things. Keep the feast. They had to celebrate a feast at a certain time, but you believers, you get to celebrate it all the time. Live as if you have this feast, right? Live in sincerity and truth. It's a call to celebrate that feast of unleavened bread, but daily. Living a life of constant devotion to sincerity and truth. Really two, two synonyms for purity. Constantly purging out the leaven of malice and wickedness. Two words that really refer to the evil purposes, desires, and actions. And so discipline in the church is so very important. It protects the church from dangerous leaven that could spread like gangrene through the church. So we have a final point here in Paul's passage. We've looked at the need for discipline, the model uh, for discipline, the reason for discipline. It, this fourth reason, the, final, or the fine, final point, is the domain of discipline. What's the sphere in which we can operate with this discipline? Do we go out and just like, uh, you know, carry a stick and <laughs> rebuke the whole world? What's Paul say here? Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now, if you were here um, two weeks ago when we did a review of chapters 1 to 4, I pointed out this verse because it, it mentions this previous letter that Paul had written. We don't have that letter today. Um, it's the lost letter. Um, God determined that it didn't need to be included in the canon of Scripture. It wasn't that important. But he had written a letter to try to clarify this situation, and they were, um, they were confused. He, he told them to not keep company with, with people who were sexually immoral. And that word, not keep company, is only used three times in the whole New Testament, two times right here in our passage. The only other time it's used, Paul uses it again. And he uses it in the exact same way in 2 Thessalonians. He, he says the same thing. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, do not keep company with them. So what is this word? Well, this is a really like, I like the long, fun Greek word, so I'm giving you this one. Sudanamignumi. Try that one. <laughs> Keep company, to mix up together, to associate with. He says, don't associate with this person. And it speaks of the church discipline that we looked at last uh, week. The unrepentant sinner, if they're unrepentant, that means they're, they're, they're not recognizing their sin, they're not repenting of that. If, if, if they're dismissed from the fellowship, then you're not to associate with them. Now, let me add what that means. That means... All activities of the church, corporate activities, corporate fellowships, so worship services, Bible studies, uh, social events, all those things. That's, that's a lot. Like for a lot of churches, that's a, that's a big loss. But it also means individual, individual fellowship. And you'll see that in verse uh, 11 uh, here in a second. So it's all, all the fellowship. He says, don't keep company with them. But they had misunderstood what he meant. Look at verse, 11, or verse 10, you find out what they misunderstood. He says, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. 
or even with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He says, if I, don't, if I was telling you not to associate with sexual immorality, you'd have to go live on the moon. That's what he's saying. You'd have to go to another planet. Of course, of course I didn't mean that. I, I, I probably, he's, he's quite patient, actually, right? I probably would have been, really? He says, no, you, you'd have to leave the world if that were the case. So what they had done, apparently they stopped trying to have contact with the unbelievers of the world, which is wrong. We're actually to be in the midst of the unbelievers. That's how we function as salt and light, isn't it? In fact, we're to be witnesses. In fact, this is a great verse, Philippians 2, 15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we've got to be in the world. We've got to be in the midst of the world because if we're living like the church is called to live, leaven free, <laughs> then we're going to shine like lights. Here's the problem. A lot of churches are failing to discipline, allow sin in the church, and the church looks like the world. Certainly not shining like lights in the world. Just looks like the world. To shine like lights in the world, we've got to make sure we're not conforming to the world. We're allowing ourselves instead to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. If you remember Jesus in his high priestly prayer, as he was about to, to leave his disciples, he was about to be crucified, he was going to you know, ascend into heaven after his resurrection, he didn't pray that the disciples would be taken out of the world, did he? He prayed this, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They needed to remain in the world because they were going to be the ones to carry on the mission and message of Jesus. So here with the Corinthians, I, they really just got this wrong. They thought he meant people in the world, and so apparently they were not going outdoors, weren't associated with them, but they were still having fellowship with the, the sinners in the church and, and happily doing so. And so Paul clarifies his meaning here in verse 11. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat, he says, with such a person. Paul makes it clear, I'm talking about professing believers, he says. If you have brothers, or sisters in Christ in the church involved in, in sexual immorality or, or any of these sins he lists here, he says you're not to keep company with them. That's the same word again used there. But also not even to eat with such a person. There's the prohibition against individual fellowship as well. I, I told you we were at, a part of a church where that had to be followed through because of an adulterous affair. And the church was confused as how to act on that. It made sense, yeah, that person can't come into the church functions and fellowship, but what do I do when I meet that person outside? Do you remember I showed you the scripture? They're still a brother. You don't treat them as an enemy, right? But you don't associate with them. Oh, what if I take them out for a coffee? or That's, a, that's fellowship. You can't do that. But what if I see them in the grocery store? Well, you don't run the other way like they, you know, they've got COVID-19. You, uh, you, but, but you don't associate it with them. That's the idea. You can't have that fellowship. And look at this, this list that he lists here. It's funny that he doesn't just deal with sexual morality. He lists all these other things. Why? Because all those things are happening in the church. He's going to deal with them, a lot of them later. All these things are taking place. So I think he's kind of like, well, I'll just kill two birds with one stone. I'll, I'll mention all these things. But as you read this list, look at this list, you would say, well, how is this in the church? Covetous, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, extortioners, all these things are happening in the, in the church? This can't be talking about believers. Well, the truth is, we do have a divine nature, but we don't have 
a new flesh. And no one is above giving into the flesh, huh? And developing sinful habits and patterns. And so when someone's living that way, they may be a genuine believer. Uh, they simply succumb to sin. Or they may be a tear among the wheat. A lot of times it's hard to know the difference. But if sin is apparent and unrepentant, they have to leave the church because you don't know. Who does know? Well, God knows. So you let the, God deal with them in that way. But look at this list. Covetous or an idolater. Colossians 3 tells us that covetousness is idolatry, which is, right? You, you, you love something to the point you want it above all things. You're idolatrous. A reviler, those are the people that go around speaking evil of other people. Drunkards, that's a clear one, right? Just alcoholics could relate to drug use as well. Extortioners, that's, a, that's in the church. The practice of obtaining something, most times money, but obtaining something through force or threats. That can't be happening in the church, no. I know a lot of churches that the, uh, you know, the old 80-year-olds 80, 80 there that are you know, holding on to their old, old ways and they want a certain thing to happen a certain way and they will threaten to get their way. I know a church that is, that's happened to. And they, and they got their way and they, they invited a different person to come and lead the church and dismiss the pastor because they wanted something done a certain way. You know what it's called? Extortion threatening to get your way. Yeah, all these things exist in the church. Evil speaking? Sure they do. They were happening in Corinth. The sins of these kind of people, these kind of things happening in the church can contaminate the church and they have to be dealt with. So the domain then, the the, the domain of the discipline is the church. We, We discipline in the church, but we can't and we don't discipline the world, right? Look at verses 12 to 13. He clears that up. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. We have no responsibility for judging outsiders, judging the world. That's that's God's domain. And they're going to be under God's judgment. Acts 17.31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. That's what God's going to to do. But we are to judge those on the inside of the church. Now that's probably taken some people for a loop. Really? Wait, we judge? How many times have you heard people quote Matthew 7, right? Judge not that you you be not judged. We We don't judge people in the church. I think Paul has something to say against that right here, don't we? In fact, when you read Matthew 7, what what kind of judgment is this talking about? Arbitrary, hypocritical, unfair judgment you go after someone because they have a speck in their eye when you've got a two by four sticking out of yours that's what he's talking about we can't we can't uh exercise that kind of judgment to people we've got to check our own hearts first but we do make judgments in the church we're right to do that God's judged the world already, hasn't he? You don't need to judge the world. No, one, no one's blowing my mind when they say, wow, there's sin in the church, God should ju- or, uh, in the world. Yeah, there is. That's why Romans 1 was written. <laughs> God's judging the world for that. So when we say things in the church like God hates adultery, you're not judging the world. That's not my judgment. That's God's. I'm just repeating what God said. That is a truth. We stand for truth. But I cannot go out there and um, discipline and apply corrective measures to the world 
right? Oh, I've got I've to discipline you now. They'll just laugh, won't, won't they? But we can confront that. We can stand for the truth. But however, when it comes to sin in the church, we do make those judgments. We do confront sin. Paul ends this whole section by quoting from the Old Testament. Therefore, put away from the, yourselves the evil person. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 13.5, but it's repeated all throughout Deuteronomy. 17.7, 7, 17, 17.12, 19.19, 21, 21.21. It just goes on and on and on. They all use the same phrase. Put away from yourselves the evil person. And as you're reading through all those things, those are those chapters where I know your, your eyes start to glaze over when you're reading through those chapters in Deuteronomy, but it's giving you references and references and references of the kind of sin that can infiltrate the ranks and how you should deal with them. Oh, here's how you deal with false prophets. If they come in and they prophesy falsely, then you need to put away the evil person from your midst. Oh, here's how you deal with those who are idolatrous. You need to put away yourselves from the midst of you, the evil person over and over and over again. Subordination, false witnesses, rebellious children even <laughs> right that's in there put a, put the evil person from among you sexual immorality is in that list as well kidnapping all those things put away the evil person from among you god dealt with sin amongst his people in the old testament very harshly it was not something to be trifled with it has a permeating effect and as the history of israel reveals Tolerant leaders and their evil influence have a, had a devastating effect on the nation, didn't they? Listen, ultimately, Paul's desire for the church is a reflection of God's heart. Paul sees the church as this chaste virgin who has been betrothed for her husband, Jesus. He will write this to the Corinthians in his second letter, but I'll show it to you. Second uh, Corinthians 11, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Ultimately, if we're not diligent to purge out the old leaven, then the church will just become another microcosm of the world. And those who are part of it have really no better chance of inheriting eternal life than those in the world. It's not that everyone in the church must be perfect. We can't be perfect. We can't be sinless. But it should be your desire and so if you have those kind of things in your life, you should want to get rid of them. A warning against sin and following through with discipline of it encourages that, that desire if it's in the church. Let me just end with a couple of, of verses I want to end you with. Uh, with Colossians chapter 1, 28. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. We won't be perfect, but that's the goal there Paul has. And he says, how do we get there? We preach him and we warn every man as a warning against those who hold on to the secret sins in the church. I just want to remind you that the leadership won't always know of those sins. Other members won't know of those sins, but there is one who knows. There's one who sees all. And Revelation 21, 27 makes it clear in the eternal state, you won't be fooling anybody. There won't be any sin coming into heaven. This is what he says. There shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You may fool the church, but you won't fool God. It's his church, and he desires purity. Now let me just end with one verse to give you the best motivation, best motivation that I can think of toward 
purity, you desire that in your life, is focusing on the wonderful gift you've been given in Christ. And I love Titus 2. And I'll end with this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Boy, you can make a whole sermon just on that couple of verses, couldn't you? But he has redeemed you. Why? Because he's got a purpose for you. He wants a people that are zealous for good. He, he wants a, a perfect church. We won't be perfect. But listen, there is a way towards that if that's really your desire. And it does mean the church has to act like the church. And we have to take sin in the church very, very seriously. The church today plays around with sin, allows it to fester in the church, and the church does not look like the church anymore. Let's be a church that looks like God's special spotless bride. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word today. We are grateful for difficult passages like this that Paul includes. Lord, they're helpful to us, that they might help instruct us on how we are to live. We we do, uh, Lord, encounter sin, and we do live with it, and we, it is a struggle sometimes to know how to deal with that. We wonder if we're being too harsh, are we being too judgmental? Oh, Lord, you just give us the right, the right things that we need here, and I thank you for speaking to us through Paul. Lord, I pray that none of us would be sitting here today just thinking, oh, I hope that person heard that sermon. <laughs> I, I, Lord, I look at my own heart first, or we should each look to ourselves I, I know the, the wicked tendencies of my heart, prone to wander, the song says. Lord, I feel it. But Lord, I just pray that you would, you would guide us back to you. I pray that you would instill in your people a desire for holiness, Lord. Many a time have I met with a person, Lord, broken over sin, confessing uh, sin, um, which is the difficult part. But Lord, to see them restored after that, wanting to live for you and to see what you've done in their lives, what a glorious thing. Lord, it is a good thing for us to get rid of the old leaven. Lord, help us to look for any leaven in our houses, Lord, to remove it far from us because we, oh Lord, we are a new lump. And what a beautiful bunch of lumps we are. God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would just speak to our hearts today that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.